Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Well, Yingers, I think this is going to be our last podcast for 2022. And after a month when credit spreads idiosyncratically jumped in October, there was classic and universally very strong mean reversion in November, as we had flagged was luckily. This generated exceptionally large returns across all of Coolabar's portfolios. Yes, that's right, Chris. After peaking at 115 basis points over the quarterly bank bill swap rate, also known as BBSW, AA-rated five-year major bank senior bond spreads finished November at 103 basis points, still well wide of their post-2013 average level of 79 basis points. Note that we measure and track these spreads using our constant maturity indices. Along similar lines, the major bank's triple B plus rated five-year T2 bond spreads hit an intramonth peak of circa 280 basis points over BBSW, yet finished the month much tighter at 245 basis points. This compares to the average five-year T2 spread for the majors at around 189 basis points. The T2 market was buffeted by some communications from APRA, which we will return to later. One notch further down the capital stack, triple B minus rated five-year major bank hybrids listed on the ASX rallied hard with their spreads compressing from 310 basis points over BBSW to just 278 basis points. Note that this is materially below the post-2013 average spread of 346 basis points. As a result of the outperformance of ASX-listed hybrids, they have come to look somewhat dear compared to the bank's T2 bonds. Historically, five-year major bank hybrids have paid about 1.8 to 1.9 times the spread that T2 offers. Today, though, that multiple has plunged to just 1.1 times, which is an all-time low. In the much safer AAA and AA-rated state government bond market, 10-year New South Wales spreads over Commonwealth bonds crunched in from circa 86 basis points at their highs in late October which, by the way, is noticeably above even the 60 to 65 basis point average levels in March 2020, to 69 basis points by the end of November, which is still miles above their long-term average of 33 basis points. In May 2021, New South Wales spreads got to as low as 15 basis points. So in summary, Yingers, credit spreads look very wide or cheap in the bank senior, bank tier two, and state government bond markets. We are, however, much more neutral bank hybrids. But all these bonds are being boosted by a tremendous increase in the three-month bank bill swap rate, which has leapt from around 0% last year to 3.1% per annum today. To highlight this influence, consider a triple B plus rated five-year CBA tier two bond. In 2021, the total running yield on this bond would have been about 1.3% per annum or 125 basis points over a BBSW rate near zero. In contrast, this year, the same bond has paid almost 6% per annum on a floating rate basis, and the fixed rate version of the bond has offered interest rates as high as almost 7% per annum. And Chris, in our zero duration portfolios, returns for the RBA cash plus 1% and RBA cash plus 1.5% strategies were in the order of 70 basis points in the month, which is the best result since April 2020. In our long short credit strategy, returns were likewise the best we have recorded since April 2020 at circa 307 basis points for the month. Another interesting development in November was a sharp reduction in government bond yields and terminal cash rates as markets pared back some previously crazy forecasts for the RBA's rate. 
In June and October, bond markets were pricing the RBA lifting its cash rate to as high as 4.6%. In November, this projection was pulled back almost 100 basis points to just 3.7%. Of course, the current RBA cash rate is 3.1%, with the RBA delivering on its 25 basis point hike at its December board meeting. We think the RBA will consider pausing soon, and on this basis, market pricing for a 3.7% terminal RBA cash rate looks a bit too high. This has flowed through to long-term government bond yields. In Australia, 10-year Aussie government bond yields peaked around 4.3% in June and were still trading at 4.2% in October. These yields fell sharply in November, down to circa 3.53%, which is a trend that has continued in early December. This triggered a corresponding rally in fixed-rate bonds, with the Osborne Composite Bond Index increasing 1.55% in November. Our active composite bond strategy outperformed, delivering 2.59% on the month. Yeah, Ying is, and the catalyst for this rally in risk-free rates has been the fairly synchronised pivot by global central banks to slow down the pace of their record hiking cycles. This has been rationalised by a clear deterioration in the global macro data as interest rate hikes start to bite and unambiguous evidence that core inflation in the US is beginning to roll over. Now, Chris, before we consider the Australian macro context, let us return to bond market developments. In November, there were a flurry of attractive new issues that priced with handsome concessions that Coolabar committed capital to, including Westpac coming to market with a AA- rated three-year and five-year senior bond issues that paid 95 basis points and 123 basis points over BBSW, respectively. These bonds came in floating and fixed-rate formats. Note that we bought both. The three-year and five-year fixed interest rates were 4.99% and 5.38% per annum. Next was NAB following suit with identical AA-rated three-year and five-year bonds that paid a similar 92 basis points and 120 basis points over BBSW. The three-year and five-year fixed interest rates were 4.67% and 5.01% per annum. ING and Bendigo also hit the market with cheap AAA-rated three-year covered bond issues that we bought. And in US dollars, we also picked up ANZ's AA-rated three-year senior bond, which paid 5.1% per annum, and a 10-year tier two bond, which paid 6.7% per annum. Yeah, Ying, as we noted earlier, APRA communicated to the banks and insurers in November that when seeking permission to repay regulatory capital securities, and by this we mean uh, what are known as additional tier one capital hybrids and tier two capital subordinated bonds, they should always ensure they comply with a regulatory standard called APS 111. Now guys, this is gonna get a bit boring and wonkish for a moment, but bear with us. Under APS 111, if a bank or insurer wishes to replace an existing hybrid or tier two bond with a new security that is more expensive, than the existing security. They need to explain to APRA the quote-unquote economic and prudential rationale for this decision. It is our belief that two institutions, AMP and Challenger, sought repayment approval on their Tier 2 bonds without providing APRA with the required economic and prudential rationale. And this situation was exacerbated by the fact that there was a large differential in the price of the old and new securities. Specifically in AMP's case, the Tier 2 bond had a spread of 180 basis points versus the new replacement tier two security, which had a spread of 465 basis points. And in the case of Challenger, the old tier two had a spread of 210 basis points versus the 355 basis points on the new security. Locally and globally, banks and insurers replace existing hybrids and tier two bonds 
with new securities that are more expensive than them on a regular basis, precisely because there is a robust economic and prudential rationale to do so. We've seen one recent example with UBS calling one of the cheapest ever hybrids to be issued in the post-GFC period. In Australia, examples include CBA's Pearls 3 hybrid that was issued at 105 basis points over BBSW and then replaced by Pearls 8, which was issued at 520 basis points over BBSW. Of course, APRA also subsequently ended up allowing both AMP and Challenger to repay their tier twos, notwithstanding the large cost differential. There are many obvious explanations as to why this is rational for issuers. First, if a bank or insurer does not call or repay their hybrids, they normally convert into ordinary shares after two years. Importantly, the cost of equity is much higher than the cost of hybrids or tier two bonds. It is therefore perfectly economically rational to repay existing hybrids and replace them with new securities that carry higher spreads, which are still way below the cost of equity. If tier two bonds are not called or repaid after five years, they automatically lose their contribution to the bank or insurer's tier two regulatory capital ratio. And this disappears at a rate of 20% each year, such that the security would contribute nothing to tier two regulatory capital after five years. Note that most tier two bonds typically have a hard repayment maturity at year 10, 12, or 15. Now this lost tier two capital must be replaced each year requiring the bank or insurer to issue new equity, hybrids, or T2 in its stead. Since non-repayments or non-calls of T2 are globally very rare for large and strong banks, they are normally regarded as a potential sign of liquidity and or solvency issues. Any bank or insurer that failed to call their T2 on the first available date would be immediately punished by a very large increase in their cost of capital. This is what actually happened to Challenger when it failed to call its hybrid security in 2020 on the first available date, and it was subsequently hit with an unusually large risk premium on its tier two security. A blanket non-call could in fact result in the bank or insurer not being able to access the required tier two capital at all, in turn forcing them to issue much more expensive equity and or hybrid securities. Here again, it's perfectly logical for prudent banks or insurers to minimize their long-term cost of capital rather than the cost of any individual transaction by repaying hybrids and tier two in a predictable fashion. And I think it's germane uh, is that this was precisely the argument that UBS made when they called their super cheap hybrid recently and replaced it with much more expensive securities. They cited the fact that they were trying to manage expectations and their long-term cost of capital. That's right, Chris. But this is not to say that non-calls do not happen. There have been several cases of full write-offs and bail-ins of AT1 and T2 capital overseas since 2007 by very weak institutions. Here in Australia, Genworth missed a call date on a T2 bond in 2020 for a short period, as did Challenger, as you mentioned, in the case of one of its AT1 hybrids. Challenger, as you mentioned, was subsequently hammered by investors with a much higher cost of capital on its next T2 issue, which priced at 355 basis points over BBSW versus 210 basis points for its preceding issue. Let's turn now to local macro considerations. Contrary to the hopium out there, there is currently zero evidence that the great Aussie housing crash is bottoming out. The most constructive thing we can say is that house prices are falling incredibly quickly, albeit at a slightly slower pace than what was recorded a few months ago. November was yet another incredibly weak month, with CoreLogic's 8 Capital City Index shrinking by a hefty 1.1%. While this was identical to the rate of decline recorded in the prior month of October, it wasn't as savage as the 1.6% loss registered in August. Across the nation, the unprecedented correction in house prices is playing out at very different speeds, decelerating in some places while accelerating in others. 
Ground zero right now is Greater Brisbane, where dwelling values are falling at a never-before-seen 2% monthly rate, which has accelerated over the last five months. Since their peak in early July, Brisbane home values have lost about 8.5% in total. In 40 years of data collected by CoreLogic, the consecutive 2% monthly drawdowns in October and November were the worst months ever witnessed. A similar theme is playing out in Hobart, where the monthly rate of dwelling price declines has accelerated from a 0.2% loss in June to a chunky 2% decline in November. If you want to spin a positive story, though, you could highlight that the house price falls have been slowing in Sydney and Melbourne from a monthly peak of 2.2% and 1.5% respectively in July to 1.3% and 0.8% in November. But the harsh reality, Chris, is that dwelling values in Australia's two largest cities are still evaporating at an extraordinarily rapid clip. Based on the last two months of data to the 2nd of December, Sydney home values are falling at a 14.1% annual rate, while Melbourne prices have been melting at a 9.6% annual rate. It's also telling that the rate of house price losses in both October and November was identical across Australia's three largest cities. Sydney, down 1.3% each month, Melbourne, down 0.8% a month, and Brisbane, off a shocking 2% per month. This implies that losses are now accruing at a more stable rate. Unfortunately, there is more bad news to come. As discussed, the RBA raised rates by another 25 basis points in December, which would mean borrowers have been slugged with a record 300 basis points of rate rises since May. To be clear, there is a compelling case the RBA should pause from here on to take stock of the damage it's inflicting on the economy. It claims it wants to be data dependent and is not on a predetermined course, but we have seen scant evidence that the RBA is being anything other than deterministic based on its rubbery forecasts. The latest monthly inflation data was a massive downside surprise, printing at 6.9% for the year to October, compared to the 7.6% expected by hawkish economists. Retail sales contracted by 0.2% in October, relative to the 0.5% gain optimistically forecasted by analysts. Outside of spending on food, sales were even weaker, dropping by 0.6% in the month. What makes this even more significant is that this data is expressed in nominal terms, which means it is boosted by the current elevated rate of inflation. In real or inflation-adjusted terms, retail spending would have fallen even further. This should come as no surprise to our listeners because we have repeatedly stressed that consumer confidence is worse than it was during the GFC, once lofty business confidence has also more recently plummeted. The latest composite PMI suggests that private economy actually contracted over November. While lagging wages, inflation and jobs data are still firm, but they will follow suit in time. CBA economist Gareth Ed argues that, quote, there is a strong case to leave the cash rate on hold in December, given the RBA has already delivered an incredible 275 basis points of tightening over just seven meetings or six months. The RBA is still flying blind to a degree, given the last few rate hikes have not yet hit home borrowers from a cash flow perspective. Note that at CBA, there is on average a three-month lag between RBA rate hikes and when a borrower on a minimum mortgage repayment schedule experiences an increase in their mortgage payment. The RBA estimates that around 23% of all Aussie home loans, worth almost $500 billion, are fixed rate and will switch to variable rate by the end of 2023. Quote, based on current market pricing for the cash rate and assuming full pass-through to variable mortgage rates, most fixed-rate borrowers with loans expiring in 2023 will face discrete increases in their interest rates of 3 to 4 percentage points when they roll over to variable rates, depending on their current rate and the timing of their fixed loan term expiry, end of quote, the RBA warns. 
Ye Ying is Martin Place has further revealed that if the cash rate were to increase by 3.5 percentage points in total, quote, almost 60% of borrowers with fixed rate loans would face an increase in their minimum repayments of at least 40% when they expire, end quote. This is an interest rate shock that was never meant to happen. Before October 2021, banks were only required by APRA to apply a mortgage repayment test that involved using an interest rate that was just two and a half percentage points above the actual product rate. The RBA has already increased its target cash rate by more than this, i.e. by 300 basis points. And market pricing expects the totality of the RBA's interest rate increases to reach about 360 to 370 basis points. That is 3.6 to 3.7 percentage points. In October 2021, APRA prudently front-ran the RBA and jacked up the minimum repayment test buffer for banks to three percentage points. Interestingly, most non-bank lenders still use a miserly two and a half percentage point buffer. APRA's expanded buffer could, however, be substantially less than the ultimate interest rate shock imposed on borrowers by the RBA. Put differently, there will be many borrowers who took out ultra-cheap home loans in 2020 and 2021 on the presumption that the RBA would not lift rates until after 2024, who will now face mortgage rates that are 40% more than the maximum their lender thought they would ever have to service during the loan's lifetime, that is via APRA's stress test. Most of the fixed rate loans taken out in 2020 and 2021 were struck at mortgage rates of between 1.75 and 2.25%. And since almost one in four Aussie home loans will have their fixed rates switched to variable rate by the end of 2023, the interest rates paid by these borrowers will more than double to 5-6%. to 6%. In contrast to most other nations where most loans are long-term fixed-rate products, the pass-through of monetary policy in Australia directly hits almost every single borrower in the short term. This is also why the RBA's rate changes have a much bigger and more immediate impact on our housing market compared to peers overseas. One key question that has been weighing on the RBA is how big a deal this record rise in the cost of capital will be for consumers' free cash flow or their disposable income. This is crucial for the outlook given that consumer spending accounts for about half of total economic growth. Using the RBA's data on residential mortgage-backed securities, the central bank finds that more than 52% of all borrowers will see their spare cash, quote-unquote, decline by between 20% and more than 100%, i.e. going to negative cash, assuming its target cash rate climbs to 3.6%. Now, spare cash is defined as by the RBA as the income the borrower has left over after meeting mortgage repayments and quote-unquote essential living expenses. A staggering 15% of all borrowers will have their spare cash turn negative in the RBA's central case. That means they are at a very serious risk of defaulting on their loan repayments. A total of 23% of all borrowers, or more than 1 in 5, close to 1 in 4, will see their spare cash shrink by between 60% and more than 100%. Almost one-third of borrowers will have their free cash reduced by between 40% and over 100%. So the bottom line here is, is that right now, there really is no good news on house prices. The pain is set to continue for many more months to come unless the RBA swings 180 degrees and starts cutting interest rates, which nobody expects in the very near term. And Chris, in Sydney, where we both own property, home values have now fallen almost 12% peak to trough. Across the five largest cities, the losses have accumulated to about 8%. Brisbane prices are down roughly 8.5% and falling at 2% each month, as mentioned. Melbourne properties are off 7.5%. In October 2021, we argued that national home values would correct by 15 to 25% after the RBA commenced raising rates. At the time, no mainstream analysts were forecasting material price falls. The previous record for Aussie house price losses was 10 to 11% between 2017 and 2019, which we should surpass in around March. 
Importantly, one should not necessarily expect a super strong bounce in prices once the RBA finishes its dirty work. It will really depend on when it cuts rates and by how much. If it does not reduce rates, prices will not appreciate until purchasing power dictates they should. And with no interest rate relief, purchasing power will be driven by income growth, which tends to be a slowly moving beast. So that's a wrap, guys. We really appreciate the time that you've taken to listen to the podcast. Uh, and on behalf of Yingers and I, we wish everybody a really restful and hopefully festive break. And we will see you in the new year. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.